case you haven't worked it out, the Park family is a bit out of sorts. <laughs> and uh, it's, it's a bit difficult because it's, just, it's been such a busy week, a busy month, started a new job, Gabby's leaving us, Becky's party, lots of things going on to do with Gabby leaving. And anyway, I just already said sorry to Rudgy if I'm a little irritated, shut up. And I am sorry because that's not right. But at the same time, I feel this, I don't know, do you feel a bit of a struggle this morning? I just feel like on one side there's these sort of, I guess, Holy Spirit influences and on the other side there's just ourselves and they're like in conflict and they're kind of clashing. But it's a soft power clash. It's not a violent blood and gore thing. It's insipid. And, um, you know, I was just singing there and listening and yet at the same time I know that God, and that's what this sermon is about, I know that God loves us so much that he truly is the hero of this whole Bible, this ancient book, this book of books, this 66 books all wrapped up into one, written over 1,500 years by 40 different authors, poetry, historical narrative, polemical essays, all gathered together as literature for us just to read. You know, like the words I'll read today will vary from 2,000 years to three, maybe even three and a half thousand years, a lot of scholars think. Imagine that. And somehow or another, we come as modern people with Facebook and Instagram and the internet, and we come to this ancient book, and of course there's going to be a clash. <laughs> there's going to be a clash culturally. We, we, we dive into this mega series, this Meet God Almighty series, and you know, we dive into it and we kind of, we're actually diving into it with people that are thousands of years removed from us and geographically removed from us as well. It is actually a miracle that you're even here today. <laughs> why, why are you here? This is a crazy old book. These crazy old ideas. I just want to thank you for that. And I also want to say, and I want to acknowledge Gabby and I was just I was a bit teary because when I was singing that song and then thinking about the sermon, I, I preach so many sermons now. And all of a sudden I just realized that... <laughs> You know, those sermons are not worth one jot if it didn't mean something to my daughters, if it didn't mean something to Gabby, if it didn't introduce her to the ultimate father, if it didn't introduce her to the Lord Jesus Christ. In a real way, if I've somehow obscured that vision sometimes, and I just want to say sorry, but if, if there's been just one iota of light through these sermons and it's been worth it, I don't care about everyone else. <laughs> I do. Of course I do. Do you know what I mean? But, and I say this to you as men as well, as dads, like if you're all caught up in church stuff or your work stuff and you're not tending to your kids, man, I feel for you. I feel for your kids. Anyway, I didn't mean to say all that, but just to say thank you. Say that sorry before if I'm a bit distracted. Sorry to Tiff for being distracted and not listening properly to the second half of what you're saying about your parents. I'm sorry about that. Anyway, now I'm going to preach. <laughs> Anyway, I'm just trying to be real, I guess. Today's sermon is uh, what Adam saw first and what Adam saw last. It is number two in our mega series. Mega is a play on words, as you know. It is literally meet God Almighty. We're putting ourselves into the shoes of these Old Testament characters, characters thousands of years old, and we are seeing what they saw, in a sense, of God. Now, you might not think the Bible's reliable. I ask you then now, in the next few weeks and months to take the time to research. And don't just research atheistic sources, that wouldn't be fair. Research Christian ones. Maybe the case for Christ is a good place to start by Lee Strobel. 
in any case, if even one bit of what I say today is true, it's worth investigating further. If you believe that you're going to die one day and that there is an ultimate reality of either nothingness or something else, what a world religion thousands of years old has said is actually worth researching, don't you think? Because it will have direct implications for you. So I just ask you to do that. I ask as well, and here come the glasses. I ask you to take off your old glasses, put on your new ones, put on today glasses of light, okay? Glasses of light, maybe even... All right. Now, you will not take me seriously if I leave these on, will you? So I'm going to put them here and just let them flash away. I'm actually wearing them because it's Becky's party and she said, Dad, can you wear those glasses? And I foolishly said yes. I guess it's sort of in celebration or whatever. But then I realised there's a connection there, isn't there? Because we all have glasses. Eddie's putting his on. We all have glasses metaphorically, don't we? We see the world in a certain way. We see it through an array of biases. And you're saying, hey, you're biased too, Adrian. I know, but I've got a big book that I understand and have been going to all my life. So I'm just going to present, I guess, what the big book says. But what I'm asking you to do is just to, just for a moment, even pray silently and go, God, help me to see you as you really are. If you're really there, help me to see you as you really are. That is the most important prayer you will ever pray if there really is the God of the Bible that is there. So not to get too, too harsh on that, but um, and to launch into my little introduction, I don't know if you saw this on the news, and we're going to pray actually for this family in a minute. Um, but I was down in Bankstown when this happened. I actually ran straight past this where the lawyer was shot in that Happy Cup Cafe. Like the Happy Cup Cafe. It's like such a juxtaposition of, you know, coffee and enjoyment and then the reality of death. And I was just like running past that and I'm thinking, what is this all about? Now, I didn't run past when the, shot, the guy was shot later on. In fact, I'm just going to pray. Lord, I pray for this family that have been devastated. I pray for this community. I pray for this whole suburb of Bankstown. I pray, oh Lord, that your spirit would move. And, and in Christians that are there, that they'd really serve and that they would just wear your name really well and serve and love these people. Please help them, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Anyway, it got me thinking again about uh, assumptions and expectations and so forth. And we talked about this last week and encourage you to look at the sermon last week online if you want. But it was all about our assumptions about God, our expectations about God. And, you know, I showed you how I got lost on my mountain bike and the Google Maps let me down. Google Maps was wrong, which meant the map in my head was wrong, which meant I, was, I had no idea where I was. And then, of course, it's like explore food and drinks around here came up while I was lost all that kind of stuff. That was all last week. So if you look at a suburb like Bankstown, which I just showed you the headline news there of the guy that was unfortunately murdered there, you look at it and the median price of a house is $995,000. Now here in little old Toowoomba, $995,000 gets you a pretty nice place, probably with a pool, probably on Campbell Street. Remember we talked about Campbell Street last week. Now, 995, that's the average, by the way, in Bankstown. Your assumption and expectation would be, if you're from Toowoomba, this is a pretty spectacular suburb. That's my assumption and expectation. So I woke up in the sports club and I looked out the window and that was what I saw. And I was thinking, oh, wow, not quite what I expected. 
you know, sort of densely populated area. There's obviously houses out and around as well. I went for a run. It was a little bit like here, you know how we've got East Creek and West Creek and they've tried to pretty it up a little bit either side. Well, this was the creek that I ran along and all I saw was rubbish everywhere, graffiti, signs just smeared over with someone else's idea of artwork. And I thought, this is not matching my expectations, my assumptions of a 995,000 median price suburb. I looked up on Wikipedia about Bankstown prior to European settlement Cumberland Plains, uh, Plains woodland occupied much of the area. Turpentine, ironbark forests covered much of what is in Bankstown. The Bediagle people occupied this area. I tried to imagine what that was like, turpentine, ironbarks, very poetic. And then, of course, later that afternoon when I'd left, I heard about this guy that was shot at the Happy Cup Cafe. And the obvious question is, why? Why is it like this? Why is it when all these people have come together, the city's grown and so forth, it's turned out like this? Why is the Happy Cup Cafe a place where people get shot? The graffiti, the garbage, just the bad vibe. Why is that? And that then leads to a massive assumption and expectation about the divine being who is omniscient, omnipotent, sovereign. Why this is happening? Why does God allow this to happen? An obvious extrapolation is there is no God. It's all crazily chaotic. But that's kind of hard to take when you think of something coming from nothing. This is the biggest argument you have to come, overcome as an atheist. Is something has come from nothing. And there are all sorts of pseudoscientific explanations. But no one yet has conquered that one. Maybe they might come up with some semi-coherent thing in the future. But just imagine something from nothing. Just ponder that. And then ponder the universe in all its complexity. Just ponder that. Just think on it. And again, be asking God, if you're really there, reveal yourself to me. Reveal yourself to me. Actually, this idea that God would allow all this evil and so forth, atheists have used that traditionally as one of their main arguments. And it's actually a good one. I've heard other people within churches use it as well, which is basically, if God knew this was going to happen, why did he do it? Why would he do that? Why would he create a place like this? And so what I want to do with you is just take you through in the next 25 minutes a root cause analysis. Some of you may have heard of that. It's a way of deciding what has caused something to happen by looking at the root cause, particularly in very complex systems. So you can imagine it almost like a, I guess, a, a, a chain link or a link, lots of uh, links. And you know, each link is an event, but you want to go right back to the first cause so we might say at the Happy Cup Cafe, it was the gun. It was the bullet tearing into flesh, killing, as it has so many people all over the world. But then it was a man who held that gun. He was a man who had a mind, a spirit, an outlook, a value system, a culture, an idea of right and wrong, an idea of what he wanted, what he desired, what he yearned for. So that guy and his culture maybe was... The cause. But he had parents who had parents who had parents who had parents who had their own cultures, who had their own values, who had their own yearnings and desires and so forth. So where would we go back? We'd keep going back further and further and further. And every time, if it wasn't a gun, we'd probably find a knife or a spear or we'd find selfishness or dysfunction or anger or we'd, we'd just keep going back and back and back and we'd keep finding it. 
And eventually the chain of causation comes all the way back to the beginning of time, to that great singularity where the universe is created. Let there be light and a singularity explodes. Except it's not an explosion, it's incredibly tightly controlled. Otherwise you wouldn't get heavy elements, you wouldn't get suns forming, you wouldn't get the universe forming. You go back to there and that's really where that shooting in the Happy Cup Cafe starts. And so that's why I wanted today, just with you, to go, what did Adam see first? Most people know Adam is the first man, Eve the first woman. We're going to look at Eve later on, uh, and next week or week after. We're going to look at what Adam saw first and what Adam saw last, okay? And then we're going to do something, a little bit of a, little of a twist. We're going to look at what God sees first and what God sees last. All the idea of why, why is it like that in Bankstown? Why is it like that in Toowoomba? And don't fool yourself. Toowoomba's not much better. It is... Significantly better in many ways. I remember a few years ago talking to the mayor, Di Thorley, and I think I've shared this with you before. We were just at Lake Annan for Gabby's farewell. You drain Lake Annan, you know what you find? This is what she told me, lots of syringes. Now, um, it was interesting because she said, you know, Adrian, I, uh, I don't know if you know Di Thorley, a bit of a, a tough lady. I, uh, I gave those pastors a bit of what for. I told them about that. I said, now, what are you doing about it? <laughs> I like Di. She was a bit rough at times. But that's the point, isn't it? There's lots of bad stuff in Toowoomba as well. It's wherever you go, you can't escape it. So we're going to look at what God sees first, what God sees last. So, so what did Adam see first? So here's some ancient words. Interestingly, most of Genesis is written in poetry or some sort of ancient poetry or prose. Maybe even a song. Maybe that's how they remembered it before it was finally written down by most scholars think it was Moses. And we're told in Genesis 2 that the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and that man became a living being. So what the Bible says is something from nothing, the complexity of your DNA, that was God. That was the supreme being, the divine being, the multidimensional being, who for some reason chooses within creation to breathe life into you. That's what now gives you existence. So just put yourselves there for a moment. Before that, even before maybe you were born, there's non-existence. So it's not blackness, because blackness is something. It's very hard to imagine nothing. Nothingness. As soon as you say the word nothingness, you're actually giving it an attribute, which doesn't work, because it's nothing. You're, it's, you, like there were, maybe some are a bit older, but let's go hundreds of years, that way I'll cover it. Hundreds of years ago, you were nothing. Think about that. And if you keep going all the way back, you weren't even existing in your parents. There was nothing. And interestingly, scientifically, scientists agree. At some point, there was nothing. There was nothing. And then God says, let there be light. I love those words. Let there be light. So Adam, in terms of what Adam sees, he doesn't actually see this happen, but he's just after it kind of. So Adam sees glorious light. Something now exists. That's day one. Uh, Day two in the creation sequence is God calls the expanse sky. So he kind of separates things out. So now there's something beyond nothing. We've got light and then we've got the sky. We've got the land. The land is formed. 
And it's all, it's all perfect and lovely and, and Adam can see all this after it's done. Then there's plants and trees and you know, somehow or another the, the great turpentine ironbarks that were at Bankstown have come from this time. The great sequoias in California. Incredible. And it's just something special walking through a pine forest, just smelling it. Especially, oh, over here, eucalypts after it rains. We could do with some rain, a bit more than what we had. That'd be nice. Even yesterday in our yard, we just had a little bit of rain. It just changes everything because of the plants. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the sky. So Adam would have looked up. You know, he, I don't know how he would have seen God when he first was something, into, uh, sorry, something from nothing. But now he can look up into the skies and he can see stars and maybe the stars were created with like photons of energy that kind of reached to earth so he could see it straight away. I don't know. Wouldn't build a doctrine on it. But you know, when we look up in the stars even today, it's so beautiful, isn't it? And then of course, the living creatures that come on that day five, the birds, the fish, man, even now with depleted oceans, just the, the multitude of animals. Incredible. Adam would have seen all that. Living creatures across the land. And of course, in Genesis, in the first chapter, and I encourage you to read this yourself later on. Try to stay with me as I'm, as I'm going through this now, but we've got that reading plan that you can go through yourself. But in Genesis 1, you'll see the big, broad, overbrush kind of, this is what it's all about. And in Genesis 2, you'll see the, the, the literary author narrow down to, this is what it looks like from Adam and Eve's perspective. So it goes from the big to the small. That's quite common in Hebrew literature. So Adam sees all that. And then, incredibly, out of all that in Genesis 2, verse 8, the Lord God himself plants a garden. Now, it's really important to understand that in the poetry of that moment, a garden for a Hebrew person was an enclosure. It was a gated garden. It was a protected area from the wilderness and the wild. It was home. It was the wild. Um, it still had a lot of beautiful, as you see in botanical gardens and stuff, still had nature, but it was in a way that was suited to human beings. And God himself makes Eden. It's called Eden. It's called delight. And so Adam sees God. He sees all that stuff. And then um, like it's like the, like the beautiful wilds are out there. But then there's this home called Eden. And so I've got no doubt that Adam could, and Eve could go out and explore just like we can. We can go out into the, the wilderness. I'm sure Tiff's been out into the wilderness of Colorado. But it's good to be home again though, isn't it? Same for us. We can go into the bush. In fact, just off the range, we can go into the bush. It's all sort of a bit wild and untamed. See the bush turkeys getting around, but you can come back to home. And we can't even probably imagine what that was like, but we're told that God made all kinds of trees to grow out of the ground that were in this garden. They were pleasing to the eye and they were good for food. And in the middle of the garden, there was the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We'll hear more about that in future sessions. The river that watered the garden, flowed into Eden and it split into four headwaters. Incredible. And so God creates Adam, puts him in the garden of Eden. And the intent is that what he sees in Eden, I think anyway, he will take out into the rest of the world. He won't like conquer the world, but he will make it more suitable for him and for his wife and for his families. That's what Adam saw first. Don't you wish you could have seen that? Don't you wish you could have seen like, 
I don't know, how did he see God? We're told later on that God walked with him in the garden. But to see this amazing creation, it's just incredible. What did Adam see last? Think about that for a minute. Now we're told that Adam lived 930 years. Some scholars have argued whether they're a real 930 years. I don't really care. It does make coherent sense to me that if they've just been created, that their, their genome is pure, there's like no contaminations, there's no mutations, so they're probably going to live longer than what you or I live. So it actually makes sense to me. However, just for a moment, for the purposes of the exercise, think. Start of Adam's life, Eden, and we're going to go through the fall in future sessions, but just flip with me to the end of his life. 930 years later, what does Adam see last? It's interesting, you can do a little sum, summation of the numbers that were given in Genesis 5, where there's a bit of a genealogy. Now, a couple of things with genealogies, we're not really sure whether it's all um, the firstborn, and many times it's not the firstborn because Seth is not Adam's firstborn. Genealogies in Hebrew literature work by having the most significant people of the families. Okay? But I'll put the sums up there. I don't expect you to do them, although you're probably already doing just to check my math. But if you think about this, by the time Noah's dad is on the picture, in the picture, Adam is 874 years old. So that means Adam has seen the beauty of a cosmos pure and lovely to what happens in the flood. What's, what happens just before the flood? According to the, the literary story of the Bible, every inclination of the thoughts of his heart, whose? Humanity, man, was evil. So, you know, we're a bit of a mixed bag, thankfully, but then the longer they live, the more and more evil they got. And the more and more evil they got, the more and more corrupted the world got. I didn't think that the latest Noah film was all that biblical, especially with those big rock monsters. I didn't get the rock monsters. But one bit that I think was done very well was the first 20 minutes where it just shows the depravity of that time. And I won't even go into all the detail, but you know, when you've got dads sacrificing their daughters and things like that, you, you're in a bad way. So Adam sees the beauty of, his, beauty, beauty of his wife Eve. He sees the garden and he sees Cain and Abel. Cain, so, so he's actually now seen Cain kill Abel. He's seen both his son murder and his son be murdered. He has got to the end of his life, 930 years later, and he has seen the preconditions for God's judgment upon the world. I had a friend who once said, why hasn't God judged us like he did back then? He wasn't a Christian or anything. We're having one of those conversations. And, and I said, well, there is a time coming. God's not going to be content to let little girls like Reba, remember Reba, be sold into prostitution. God, God's not going to be content to let that continue to happen. But for now, there's grace. There's a bit of grace. But imagine Adam seeing that. Terrible. And I wonder if in his 900s, in the fading light of his last days, he looks around at a world, a world unlike anything that, that, that he had first seen. And I wonder if he could remember Eden, the sanctuary, the abode, the gated garden. I wonder if he remembers walking with God in the garden. Now he's the father of the murdered and the murderer. You know, he worked that garden. Now it's just full of thistles and thorns in the outside world where he's sort of been banished to. He saw his beloved, beautiful, 
innocent wife. He would have enjoyed sweet intimacy with her. And then he would have heard her scream in pain when a baby was coming. Maybe even heard her sobs when, when, when Abel was killed. And just, just let that kind of soak into your, your souls for a minute. You know, like those, those pictures that are just flashing up there. I don't know. I wonder if they quickly snap through his head. Who knows? Pictures of, of, of the cosmos, beautiful and lovely. Now interspersed with thorns and thistles. And, and you just think again, like, what, what is God thinking? We're back to that assumption and expectation. Why would God do that? Why would God build a world like that? Knowing that that would happen. These are taken just from uh, a run through Toowoomba. And it's funny because uh, they're just there on the side of the path amongst the garden. So that was what Adam saw first. That's what Adam saw last. So what did God see first? Because we're back to that root cause analysis. Knowing that the fall would come. Knowing that Cain would kill his brother. Knowing that a lawyer in Bankstown would be killed. Knowing that a little girl called Reba you know, would be sold by her parents. Here's the thing. What did God see first? We're told in the Bible that he is omniscient. He sees all things. So he saw the beauty of creation and he also saw the corruption that would come. So if we follow the logic of that, do you know where that takes us? It takes us to God knowing that he would create a world that would fall. Now this is not a God necessarily that you would want to believe in. And if there are other gods out there that have this as their narrative, but don't have what I'm going to show you next, it's problematic. It's very problematic. That's why it's brought up by atheists so much. And you might say, well, why did he do that? Why haven't you done something about that? We should know this. This is what we should know. This is what we should know. All that beauty, all that complex, cosmologically grand creation was made with God knowing that it would cost him, okay? We're we are Christians. We're not, we're not Jewish. We, we respect the Jewish people. We are Christians. We wear the name of Christ. So we believe that Christ somehow or another was with God. The Holy Spirit was with God. We see a bit of a plurality there where let us create them. That's what the Genesis says. Let us. If we didn't have the cross and God on it, then we... I wouldn't be a Christian, to be honest. I just wouldn't. Everything else is a paper-thin theodicy. Theodicy just means your argument for why there's evil in the world if there's a God. Revelation 13 tells us that the Lamb was slain from the creation of the world. That doesn't mean he was literally killed, the Lamb of God. We just sung, that's Jesus. What it means is that God knew he would create and he would ultimately have to die. I liken this to sweet peach crescent. So sweet peach crescent is a beautiful place. I want to make it my own. I make it and I know I've got a little bit of uh, a forethought, a, a bit of foreknowledge about that place. And I know that as I make it and I build my family there, my family are going to go wrong. And the only way, the only way that they're going to come back, the only way that they're going to be set back on that good path where they're actually going to love each other, respect each other, is for me to die. Now I ask you as a parent, will you still make that place? Will you? Knowing that your kids will go bad, Will you still make that place? Will you still create it? Will you still serve them? Will you still love them? Of course you will. You'd do anything for your kids. You'd die for your kids, most of you. I'm pretty sure you would. God sees 
creation, he sees his people going wrong and he sees that he will have to die for them. That is a beautiful thing. So while God saw the beauty and the loveliness and the exquisite wonder of creation, just like Adam did, God also saw the nails, a spear, a jagged crown of thorns, blood, screams, anguish, torture, rasping breath and death. His own. His own. And I know that's, man, that's a bit in your face, isn't it? But we're told in Acts that Jesus was delivered by the determined counsel and foreknowledge of God. And he was taken by lawless hands. He was crucified and put to death. But God raised him up, having loosed the pains of death. The determined counsel of God. That's why the lamb is slain from the beginning of time, because God knew what would happen. He knew what it would cost him. And he loved you so much that he gave his only son, that if you would believe in him, if you would depend on him, if you would put your trust in him, pledge your allegiance to Jesus, you will not die. You will not perish. You will not decay in the grave. You will be raised up in that final day. That's what God did. And I'm so pleased that we do have an omniscient God because God doesn't see all of this around us. He doesn't see Bankstown, the Happy Cup Cafe, as the final chapter. This is the final chapter. Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. This is an amazing picture of God's power amongst us when we believe and pledge our allegiance to Christ. We we say, no, I'm not going to follow my own way. I'm going to follow your way. We become one with Jesus. We go into the waters of baptism. We're washed clean. We also symbolize our oneness with him. And in a sense, God now sees us with Christ. Already raised. That's what God sees last. In order that in the coming ages, he might show the incomparable riches. Incomparable. So think of riches. Think of something that you really like. Really, really like. Would really, If you had money, you'd buy it right now. And now think about what God has promised. It doesn't compare. It's, it's so small. It's like a little bit of dust on the floor. It's amazing. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It's a gift of God. Not by work so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared beforehand for us to do. I love this quote from G.K. Chesson. He says, In the struggle for existence, it is only on those who hang on for 10 minutes after all is hopeless that hope begins to dawn. And I kind of think that's, that's such a Christian thing to say because 10 minutes after you're dead and everything seems hopeless, I think light is going to just burn in your soul and you're going to see God. And you know, God hasn't left us alone. He's told us what the final chapter will be. And in the meantime, I don't understand the mystery of suffering. I don't understand why all that has to go on. But I just trust that God's good moral character, the fact that he went to the cross is enough for me to say, okay, he has an ultimate purpose in this. And it's going to be a good purpose. In the meantime... As you see up there, the Salvation Army Neighbour Centre. I'm not advertising for the Salvation Army, but it was so pleasing just to be running through that suburb and see. Here are Christians. Here are Christians who want to serve. Here are Christians who want to love. They want to, in a sense, come with the hands of Christ, those scarred hands and serve. God bleeds for those on Restwell Street there, on Stanley Street, the family of the lawyer. What a God 
What a Lord, what a Saviour. You know, there's such hope here, isn't there? You know, we've really been promised something magnificent. We have a magnificent story. We have a magnificent God, a magnificent Saviour. I just pray that just as we saw last week, the disciples' eyes were open to see Jesus as he really is, that in this series, our eyes too would be open to see Jesus as he really is. You know, we heard last week about the fellowship of the burning heart. That's a heart that burns for Jesus, burns for God, burns for other people. They're the kind of people you want to be around. They're the kind of people that are happy to serve, happy to take a few hits for the team. They're people that are they're going to kind of serve and give because Jesus is their motivation. The love of Christ compels us. And again, Gabby, I just want to say to you, the love of Christ compels us. I just want you to remember that. and You know, that's a special verse for us as a family. The love of Christ compels us. You know, that psalm that I quoted in the, in the share time, my, my strength and my heart may fail, but you are the portion uh, and my strength forever. Like you're the portion of my heart. You are my heart. You know what that says? It says when you don't feel like doing something, you've got the heart of God available to you through the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. You've got that. That's why God is a little bit upset in a holy, just way when you keep saying things like, no, I just can't do it. I can't do it. I can't. No, what you're actually saying is God can't do it. His, his, his divine power has given you everything you need for life and godliness through his promises, it says. And I just pray that the Holy Spirit will walk with us and teach us about this God who, who, was, who loved us so much that he was willing to go to the cross. He loved us so much that he was willing as he just created that kind of exquisite hummingbird knowing that one day it would face death as he created us. I mean, human beings are so complex. Is he just kind of, I don't know how he did it, circuit boards, no, uh, wired together our brain, the neurons, wired in each individual personality. That's incredible. And, and saw them all spread out through time, knowing that the cross would have to come, knowing that, that, that that's incredible. That, that should knock the oxygen out of our lungs. And now as we come to communion, we remember the hands of the great God of the Bible, the hands that crafted the cosmos, the hands that carved out planets and moons, the hands that shaped the galaxy, the hands that constructed the complexity of your cells, the hands that reached out to Adam, Cain, Abel, Abraham, Moses, David, all the hundreds of characters of the Bible. And we remember that those have, hands have scars. And we remember that, that God knew that he would get his hands scarred. We're even told in heaven, in the new heaven, in the new earth, and the new kingdom, that he still bears those scars. Incredible. And so as we come to the table, I might just get Rick to remove the covering there. Now, in this church, that table's open, and if you're a Christian and you love the Lord Jesus, then, you know, I invite you to come forward and partake. We saw last week about how when Jesus broke the bread, the disciples recognized him. We said, why? you remember why? Because they saw the scars. <laughs> That's what I think anyway. Yeah, Rick, if you could break the bread. You now, Jesus himself gave us this as a remembrance meal. And when we break the bread, we remember Jesus' body broken for us. When we drink the blood, we remember his... Um, sorry, when we drink the wine, we remember his blood spilt for us. 
It's just juice, of course. They're just symbols, but at the same time, they connect to a reality that is magnificent and special. And again, there's no problems at all if you're not comfortable to take it. You're not in that place yet where you see Jesus as your Lord and as your Savior. That's fine. But if you've maybe even today gone, you know what? Actually, I do want to follow Jesus. And this is an awesome time to pray to him, to come forward, to take of the bread, to take of the cup, to talk to one of us afterwards. This is your time. And I said before that there's a struggle. And I feel it now. And I know it's there. There's a struggle between your rationale, your reason. You think it's reasonable. You think it's the rationale. Maybe there's a struggle between the feelings that you have of tiredness, of apathy, of all that kind of stuff. And I don't want to make you uncomfortable. I just want to say, though, that all that stuff, that clash, that clash, you know, beyond all that, there's a God who loves you. There's a God who's died for you. And so just consider that. Consider that. We're going to have a little bit of quiet and then I'll ask you to come forward, take of the bread, take the cup back to your seat and then we'll drink the cup together. So let me pray. Father, thank you so much for the universe. Thank you for existence. Thank you for bringing us to life. Thank you that you care for us. Thank you that you didn't remain in heaven beyond the kind of dimensional threshold where we can't even see you, calling the shots, making us break whenever we tried to live up to your rules and your commandments. Instead, you saw us in our state and you came for us as a good shepherd. And I thank you that as we eat of this bread and we drink of this cup, we remember you until you come again. So thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So yeah, come forward in your own time.